Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of First Chronicles. That's where we are today. First Chronicles, returning to our series, a look at the book, to look at First Chronicles, a book in the historical books section of the Bible. What we're doing is going through the Bible in this series, summarizing entire books of the Bible so we get a sense of the sweep of what Scripture is teaching us. And today, First Chronicles. Here's the key concept for this morning. Look back to leap forward. That's what the children of Israel are doing. We'll see that in a moment. Look back to leap forward. But as you're finding First Chronicles, let's think for a little bit about how we are to read biblical history. Most of the Bible is history. And as we read that, we want to make sure we're reading it with the right intentions in mind. There are various ways or various levels of reading history in the scriptures. I want to show you those levels on the screen. Now the screen, the order on the screen, we, I go from the least appropriate level on the bottom to the most appropriate level on the top. It's kind of reversed on your outline in your bulletin. I recognize that. But the least appropriate way to read the history in scripture is what I'll call the critical level. The critical level is when you read with the Bible in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other, cutting out those things that you don't like. Maybe you don't like the supernatural. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, literally cut out of his Bible all the miracles. He didn't believe that God intervened in supernatural ways, so scissors. Or maybe you're cutting out the, the, the direction that God gives us regarding our morality, and you don't want to be hemmed in by the way Scripture describes what is uh, pure moral living, so you cut those things out. That's the least appropriate way to read Scripture. On top of that, we might see the anecdotal level. That's when we read the, the stories of the Old Testament as if they were bedtime stories, not necessarily true, not necessarily false, having no particular impact in our lives, just anecdotes. Then there's the historical level when we read to see how God used nations and, and gave rise to nations and let them fall, but we don't see any connection to the way we are to live our lives, just history. Then there's the biographical level. When you ask of the scriptures, these individuals that the Bible talks about, am I to emulate them and follow their example, or am I to cross them off as a bad example and to avoid living that way? They're making some application for your life. On top of that, there's the devotional level where we're reading for spiritual principles, asking the question, what spiritual principles can I derive from this scripture so that I can live my life God's way? That highest level, the theological level, as we read even the historical accounts in scripture, what does this teach me about God? What do I learn about the creator of the universe and how should I come to know him and live for him more appropriately? We believe that, that we should be reading the scriptures basically on that level, but it's a mix of those top four levels that we're constantly weaving in and out to appropriately look at the historical sections of the scripture. And today in First Chronicles, we're reading history. The Jewish tradition tells us that First Chronicles was written by Ezra. The same Ezra whose name had named uh, a book in the Bible that we'll get to later, this Ezra. And it was written during the time of Ezra's life for sure. Because Chronicles is written as a history to give to the exiles who are either returning or about to return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. 
When Chronicles is written, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has led the nation Persia to defeat Babylon. And the Persian Empire does not have the same policies as the Babylonians, whereas the Babylonians and the Assyrians took captives and slaves and transported them to different areas within their empire. The Persians didn't do things that way. And so they said to the Jews, Cyrus said, you can go home. If you want to go home, you can go home to Jerusalem. Not all by any means, but a portion to return to Jerusalem. And First Chronicles and, and Second Chronicles are written to give to these who will be returning to teach them about their history so they can rebuild the nation on what has gone before. Now, we might be tempted to think that in First and Second Chronicles, we just have a rehash of what we read in First and Second Kings, but we would be wrong because it's told from a very different perspective. When you come to First and Second Chronicles, there's focus on what the rulers did right. In Kings, we're reading a book written right at the destruction of Jerusalem, most likely by Jer Jeremiah himself. And he, reads, he writes that book saying, this is why we're in the kind of trouble that we're in, because we've done all of these bad things and sinned against the Lord. It's a very negative, critical look. But Chronicles is written to those who are returning to give them a positive sense of the history of the nation that they are going to rebuild. So the emphasis is on the positive. The emphasis is on their roots, giving the people a sense of identity. There is no mention of any of the northern kings in First or Second Chronicles. And the reason for that is not one of the northern kings was a good king. And none of them came from the line of David. Chronicles is emphasizing the real royal line, the Davidic line, who are reading this book in its first reception. Those to whom the book is given are in the tribe of Judah. It is those in the southern kingdom who are returning to establish Jerusalem and the nation once again. The ten tribes of the north have been defeated and scattered in the midst of history when they are referred to as Jews and their faith is referred to as the Jewish faith because it's all those from Judah who are returning. A great deal of time in Chronicles is spent talking about the ark and the temple because their job is to go back and to reestablish the religion. The message is you are a people with God as central to your identity. Reestablish that once again. And so the themes of Chronicles are roots, royalty, and religion. Those are the three words that run through both First and Second Chronicles. They need encouragement uh, to reestablish the nation. And the encouragement comes in a way that we may find somewhat foreign. Because really, the book of First Chronicles can be divided in two sections. The first section is through chapter 10, and all it is is genealogy. Nine straight chapters of genealogy. That is a rugged beginning for Western readers. And it's a little dry, right? Do you figure, how can that encourage? We'll see that in a moment, how, how it does. But the second portion of the book is all about David and the, the great hero of the nation, King David. And the genealogies is where we begin. The first nine chapters are solid genealogies. And uh, this list of names teaches us something. And the first lesson that it teaches us is this. The Bible 
is not primarily a book of philosophy. The Bible has philosophy embedded in it, but it is not a book of philosophy. Philosophy says, this is the way you can look at the world. And history is much more blunt than philosophy. It doesn't invite you from a perspective to look at the world. History says, this is what has happened. Now you must react to it. And the lesson we learn from the history of the names of the genealogies is that God is faithful to his promise. And that lesson is, is pointedly taught in chapter 2 in the first three verses. Go with me there, chapter 2, the first three verses. I'll set up what's happening here. In chapter 1, the genealogy has gone all the way back to Adam, kind of given us this big sweep of history of humanity. But by the time he gets to chapter 2, he's zeroing in on one family. And this is what he says. We're the sons of Israel and, and Shelah. These three were born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. As he begins chapter 2, the author focuses on one family, the family of Jacob. Here he names him the name that God changed his name to, Israel. And that became the family name, and that became the national name, Israel. In, in verse 2, he names all the sons of Israel, the, the, the patriarchal fathers of the tribes. But then in chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he says something that was shocking. The average Jew reading this would have stood up and taken notice in verse 3. Do you see what the surprise is? He was a bad man and was killed by God. There's no surprise there. The surprise is that in, in verse 3 of chapter 2, he starts talking about the fourthborn, not the firstborn. Now, all throughout the genealogies, we see that the lineage and the legacy, the inheritance, all followed the firstborn. But here, in chapter 2, verse 3, he starts talking about Judah. And that's where the agenda of the author is given up. Because the author is not just giving us lists of names. He's not just telling us history. He's telling us history that is informed with theology. Judah's line is the royal line, not Reuben, the firstborn. Because the author remembers the deathbed words of Jacob. In Genesis 49, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That is a huge verse Jacob, in his, in his throes of death and his deathbed, he, he assigns the royal line not to the first, second, or thirdborn, to the fourthborn, Judah. This is where the royal line will be found. And not only the royal line for Israel, but the nations will obey him. It's a much bigger picture. God has a plan, and God is working his plan. And the, the writer is saying, the plan is still in force. Let me tell you about Judah, the tribe of Judah. God is faithful to his promises. And the second lesson is God works those promises through people. Obey him in that he, he sets up in particular situations to do the task that he's called them to. But it is his power behind those people accomplishing his will. I mean, the, the, the 
people of the children of Israel may think that it's because we're so nice that Cyrus wants to release us so that we can go back to the land and, and he's just being responding to our diplomacy or whatever they're thinking. But in reality, it's God's unseen hand directing them back to reestablish the nation that he uses. And so for the next few chapters, we see a list of names, name upon name, name upon name, just a rapid succession of names until we get to chapter 4, verse 9. And chapter 4, verse 9, boom, the author puts the brakes on and he makes a comment about this particular name. Chapter 4, verse 9, read it with me. It says, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the Lord God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. Jabez is a man who prayed a great prayer. He prays, Oh, that you would bless me. And I hope you don't think that's a selfish prayer. Selfish prayers are manipulative prayers. They're demanding prayers. But this is a prayer for himself, but not selfish. We must pray for ourselves if we will mature in our walk with Christ. We must pray that the Holy Spirit do a fuller work in us. We must pray against temptation so that we would live pure and set apart lives. We, would, we must pray for God's best blessing. Pray it for yourself. That's not selfish. God wants to bless. It's a prayer in line with the principle of Proverbs 10 saying, The Lord's blessing is our greatest wealth. Pray for yourself. And then he prays, enlarge my territory. Jabez has a sense that the circle of his influence, the circle of his life can be larger than what it is. I can do more. Lord, enlarge my territory. You might say, you know, I can't pray that prayer. I'm way too busy already. And don't confuse busyness with fulfillment or busyness with being busy about the right things. Jabez is praying, Lord, I want what you want for me. And I think that you want more than what I have or what I am. And then he says, let your hand be with me. Because if you're going to pray, Lord, enlarge my territory, you've got to pray, let your hand be with me. Show up and help me. Help me in the things that you're bringing me to. And God wants to answer that prayer with yes. He wants to answer it that way. He promises us that. In a couple of weeks, we'll get to Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That's a verse to underline and to know. God is looking for people to bless. He's looking for people to bless. Ranging throughout the earth. Who is it that's fully committed? Pray that His gaze would fall on you and He would see you as fully committed because the blessings will come. And then he rounds out his prayer with, keep me from pain, which is ironic because the name Jabez means pain. Gave birth to him in pain. That's what his mother said. So that's what I'm going to name him, pain. I think we would have a lot more kids named pain if we let mothers name their kids this. We stopped that, I guess, long ago. I don't know anybody named pain, but that was his name. But he's saying, I don't want that to identify me. I don't want that to be the thing that's just what I'm all about. I want, I want to go beyond that. Keep me from pain. It's interesting to see. What I, what I want you to see is in this rapid-fire genealogy, boom, 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 name, 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 all of a sudden, pause. Let's talk about this guy. Makes me think. In the years to come, when people are doing our family tree, 
right? And, and they're writing out the genealogies and so-and-so begets so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. When they come to our names, will they pause? Will they have something to talk about positively to say, well, let me just tell you, there's something good about this one. Let me, let me explain it. Or are we going to just be a name on a list? There's more here in the genealogies. We learn God works through nations. Go over to chapter 5, verse 26. And here the picture gets a little bit bigger. And it says in the midst of the genealogies, he steps back and he talks about national, national stuff. He says, so the God of Israel, verse 26, stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. Now you might read that and say to yourself, well, I'm confused because, you know, kings told me that Tiglath-Pileser and then the next king, Shalmaneser, that these Assyrian kings came and took the whole ten tribes captive. And they did. But here it's described just as three. And the reason he describes just these three is answered if you would look at the map in the back of your Bible. Because these are the three tribes that took land on the east of the Jordan River. In other words, these were the easternmost tribe tribes and Assyria came from the east. He's saying this, this is the leading edge of disaster, these three tribes. These three tribes were the first fruits of our failure. They represent the entire nation of the north, the ten tribes, being carried away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But he moves on because it wasn't just the north. It was the south as well. And in the very next chapter, he fasts forward many years to 586 when the south, Judah itself, is carried away, this time not by Assyria but by, by the Babylonians. In chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Jehozadak was deported when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Giving them all the genealogies, mentioning the failure, you know, in, in very broad terms, but making it personal. And here's how he made it personal. Jehozadak was the high priest when Nebuchadnezzar invaded. And he's saying, you know these people. This is what happened. This is our history. God is working through his faithfulness. He's working through people. He's working through nations to, to uh, bring us to this point. And now he's sending us back. The unseen hand was always working. And one of the ways he worked is he provided us with heroes. So starting on chapter 11 and forward, he talks about one particular hero, the hero of David. David, king of Israel. He goes, let me tell you about this hero. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In chapter 10, he's just given the end few moments of Saul's life, and now he, he concentrates on David. And if you remember the history from our description of kings and from your reading of kings, you'll say to yourself, hold on, I thought it was Saul persecuting David and chasing him around in the desert. Hold on, I thought there was a civil war after Saul died and, and David wanted to take over, but his son, Ishbosheth, also wanted to take over, and so there was civil war. None of that is mentioned. You'll say, hey, I remember about, you know, General Abner, how he was on Ishbosheth's side, and then he switched sides and he was murdered. None of that is mentioned. In fact, as you read further in the story of David's life, you'll say, hold on, wasn't there something about Bathsheba in there somewhere? None of that is mentioned. Accentuating the positive. 
He's saying, I want you to, to hear our history, but let's see the positive aspects of it, the good things, so that you know what you can build on and what you are, are to emulate, not the negative stories that we don't want repeated. And so we have that kind of approach to the life of David. In fact, one of the only negative stories that's told about David in this book is about the fact that he, he numbered the soldiers in the census against God's will. And the only reason that that's given is because that was the sin which caused him to purchase the threshing floor, which became the flat, high place that we now know as the Temple Mount, where the temple was built. See, the focus is on unity. The focus is on worship and the temple. A lot of time is spent about the ark and David bringing the ark to Jerusalem and him putting it in a tent but wanting to build a temple to honor God. And in the exchange, we read God's response to David's request. Fast forward with me to chapter 17. In chapter 17, we have the exchange where David is praying, God, allow me to build a temple in your honor. And here's the answer that God gives him in chapter 17, verse 11. He says, When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he is the one who will build a house for me. In other words, the answer to David's prayer was no. Here's what we need to understand. No is a legitimate answer when you pray. How do you respond when God says no? Many spiritually pout. Some of us pout for years. We go through our Christian life with our arms crossed and our face downcast and like, go ahead, God, just try to do something. You know, pouting. But David shows us the right reaction when God says no. He loves God and he loves his word and he loves his work. And so David responds by helping the one for whom it will be yes. God says no to many of our prayers. We have to re recognize that always for our good, one day to have a career which took you off to faraway Paris. You live in Stockton. <laughs> That's a no. You wanted to be a baseball player with the roar of the crowd and the crack of the bat. You're an accountant. You wanted a life without pain or sadness, but pain and sadness comes into every life. We'll be spiritually pout, that, okay, my son will be the one to build the temple, but I'm going to help him out. It's not going to be me. The answer is no. So David, though, spends the rest of the book, 17 forward, he spends the rest of the book gathering materials for the temple, making plans for the temple, bringing together craftsmen for the temple just to get ready to put Solomon on the launching pad to success. He doesn't pout. He works for God's glory and for God's name. And finally, he gives a handoff to his son Solomon who takes over. In chapter 28, we see the handoff. David is on his deathbed or soon to die. And in chapter 28, verse 9, for Solomon's building project, verse 9 says, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. As the transitions happen, he's not going to be the one to build the temple, and he's not going to be king forever. At this point, he's been king for 40 years, and now it's time to make a handoff. And when he makes a handoff, he says, of first importance, know the God of your father. 
It means come to know him. This is the most important thing we pass on to our children, the knowledge of God, our relationship with the Lord. The most important thing we pass on to our children is that, is that yearning to trust Jesus as Savior and walk with him through life. We must train them, our children. It means we need to train them to be lifelong followers of Jesus Train them to be lifelong worshipers. This is something that I'm currently talking about and thinking about and praying a lot about because parents and grandparents, part of training your children to be lifelong worshipers is bringing them into worship, is being with them in worship, allowing them to see adults at worship, adults at prayer, adults giving tithes and offerings, learning from the word, humbly singing songs of praise to God. Many of our teens and older children don't get that. They don't experience it. But we are the ones who have to work so that they do, so that we make a good handoff. And David is doing that here. Know the God of your father. Serve the God of your father wholeheartedly, he says. And then live out your calling. In verse 10, he's very specific. He says, Solomon, you're here to build a sanctuary, a temple to our God. That's your calling. That's what he's designed you for. I'm not designed to do that, but Solomon, you are. And part of our handoff to our kids is to get them to understand the way God has designed them and the calling he's placed upon their lives. And once they get that, to go after it so that God will be glorified. It starts with an understanding of the God we serve. It continues with an understanding of ourself. David made the handoff and the kingdom was better off when he stepped away than when he took over. And as we get to Second Chronicles in a couple weeks, we'll find what Solomon did with that handoff. But the implication for those who are receiving this book as they get ready to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild from the rubble, the implication is the same God who accomplished all of that is with you. So depend on him. Be sold out to him. Be ready to say yes to him. And it leaves us with some challenges. Centuries later, it leaves, leaves us with the challenge of being ready to understand what God has designed us for, with the role that he's called us to play and saying yes to that role. And it leaves us with a question of who we're handing off to and are we making a good handoff so that the next generation will raise up, rise up and follow the Lord that we love. David says, that's what I want to do.